This season of Life on a Plate is sponsored by Bellazoo, the amazing suppliers of Mediterranean and Middle Eastern ingredients. Their range includes premium olive oils and vinegars, pestos, pastes, and preserved lemons. And if you haven't yet tried their signature Rosa Rissa, which is a staple in my fridge, then you are in for a treat. Bellazoo started 30 years ago when two friends, George and Adam, drove a van full of olives back from France. They began supplying chefs, then home cooks, and have never looked back. Bellazoo ingredients are restaurant quality, and I've genuinely been a fan for a very long time. Their tahini from Nablus has a very special place in my kitchen shelf. It's so nutty and flavoursome. Their ingredients are such a simple way to enhance other flavours, and they transform any dish. Bellazoo source and develop their products very carefully, without compromising on quality, and have gone above and beyond in their commitment to the environment and to looking after their suppliers. To find out more, go to waitrose.com forward slash Bellazoo to discover the range for yourself. Hi, I'm Yasmin Khan. And you're listening to Life on a Plate, the podcast from Waitrose. Throughout the season, my co-host, Alison Okavy and I are going to be talking to a range of fantastic guests from many walks of life and asking them to share their stories through the food memories, dishes and ingredients that mean the most to them. Hi, Alison. Lovely to see you. Hi, Yasmin. Nice to see you. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Uh, Slight change of location this week. I'm in Birmingham. Oh, what brings you there? Well, that's where my mum and dad live and also my sister's uh, over visiting from the States, which is really nice. So it's been really good to be with the family and do lots of cooking. Yeah, because I imagine it's quite a long time since you all saw each other. What 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 do you all sit and eat? It is. It's been a full year, and we've descended on my mum and, and asked her to make all our favourite Persian dishes. So we've been eating lots of gourmet um, sabzi, which is this incredible stew made with this is no exaggeration about one point five kilos of fresh herbs uh, wow. that we kind of cook down into a thick sauce, and kind of it's a beautiful kind of earthy stew with lots of lamb and dried limes. Does it come a really lovely khaki green colour with all? All those herbs it does mm. it does yeah so and it's just yeah so we've been we've just been eating lots of persian food which has been a real delight uh what about you what have you been cooking this week well it's a bit like you stews it is it's a bit colder so slow cooked you know it's really good beef casserole mm. with lots of mushrooms and just i mean they smell nice and they, they kind of smell warm while they're cooking don't they and there's something about the slow cooked dishes they seem to take on a, a different quality i think because the ingredients all meld into each other you know i think nigel slater always says when you cook something slowly it gives the ingredients time to get to know each other mm. So lots of eating. What else have you been up to this week? Well, very apt for this week's guest. I spent yesterday at a local city farm with my nephew, which was just so fun, just feeding the goats and the sheep and seeing the little chickens running around. And it was particularly pertinent because, of course, we're speaking to the campaigner and environmentalist Chris Packham this week, who, believe it or not, 
has been making nature programs for 35 years, which really blows me away. I mean, I really remember him from when I was a kid watching the really wild show. And of course, these days, he's more regularly on the telly with Autumn Watch, uh, which is currently on iPlayer, I think. I always think it's autumn or spring whenever you see Chris on telly. You just know it's that change in the season. He's just a fixture of your telly viewing calendar. He is. You know it's autumn when you've Chris spotted Chris in an anorak talking about bats. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he was really eloquent in the way he spoke in our interview about his relationship with nature and how vital it is for us to protect the natural world by tackling this climate change emergency that we're in. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that what else is really interesting for me is this kind of more recent strand of work that he's been doing, which is around his advocacy for autistic people. And I really found it so moving when he opened up about his own autism in his documentary, Asperger's and Me. And it was wonderful to talk to him about it because I think it is a topic that we don't hear enough about. I'd agree with you on that. He's so articulate and it's such a hugely important subject. I can't wait to listen to him again. Indeed. Here is our conversation with the wonderful Chris Packham. Hi, Chris. How are you doing? Hi, Chris. Hello. I'm very well. How are you? Good, thanks. I think... Chris, you're something of a national treasure, really, aren't you? I mean, I have such fond memories of, of watching you when I was a kid on the Really Wild show. And for the course of the research, of, you know, for this podcast, I was kind of going into all the different nature shows that you've made since then. I counted 33. You'll probably know if it's more than that. But- I haven't I haven't counted, <laughs> I have to tell you. Um, there is a, an increasing, uh, whether we can call it a legacy or not, or a litany, I'm not entirely sure, but I've been fortunate to be uh, have been making nature programs since 1986 which as wow. you point out is a long time ago so you were watching me as a child I was, I and was. you're not a child any longer I'm not I'm 40 years old now well that's so. made me feel very old very much older than you obviously I had my well, 60th birthday recently but um, I'm trying to age disgracefully so I'm, I'm still trying to expend as much energy as I did when I was 26. Well, you're looking great for it. I actually saw you. I mean, this is a sidebar, but I saw you on the BBC and I was like, he looks amazing. And I had to like Google how old you are. And I was like, there's no way he's 60. So we're going to be getting into your secrets later. But what began your interest in nature, Chris? Where did it come from? Well, it it seemed to be primal in the sense that um, my parents told me that I was crawling around in our very small back garden in suburban Southampton, picking up ladybirds and and catching tadpoles out of a small upturned bath that they put in as a pond uh, before I could (laughs) even speak. And certainly my earliest memories go back to when I was just before five. And by then I was obsessed with dinosaurs at that point in time and bats. Um, Both were inaccessible to me. And I think as a child, I was drawn to many things which I couldn't quite see or connect with, uh, but I would fantasize about from my childhood encyclopedias. So it it didn't originate from my parents. Uh, My mother was a legal secretary when she went back to work after my sister and I sort of got into more education. And my father was a marine engineer. But the key thing is that they were both very much invested in our education. So they 
weren't of the mind that you know education stopped when the school bell sounded we went home and they didn't have that much money but what they did have they spent on books uh, for us and they would take us out every weekend and, and my father was a very keen military historian so there wasn't a castle or a military museum that we hadn't visited across the land mm. um, but he, they were very generous in the sense that you know they would split the castle alongside the zoo which was one of my you know, primary uh, destinations as as a child. So, I mean, again, you know, by the time I got to school, it was already too late. <laughs> well, lucky for us, really. I've heard you say that you feel you have a more honest relationship with animals than humans sometimes. And I thought that was such a curious statement. Um, why do you think that is? Um, I've always had intense relationships with the animals that I, I kept. Initially, I didn't keep animals that were able to reciprocate that uh, relationship in or manifest uh, a relationship in return. So I kept a lot of reptiles and snakes and small rodents and things. But then when I was 14, I kept a bird of prey, a kestrel. Um, And you can have a a more responsive relationship with a bird like that. They have very quite uh, pronounced individual personalities and characters. And then after that, um, when I was much later in life, I started keeping dogs. And they have become and remain fundamentally important relationships in my life, probably the most important. They are honest. You know, I don't want to sound like a damaged human. I've had some great relationships with humans too, but human relationships are obviously more complex. Dogs have very simple social lives. And so once you're integrated into those and you're part of a pack, as I've always been with my uh, poodles, um, then that relationship is always giving. It's never taking. And therefore, it's it's one that provides you with enormous comfort and refuge. So when things go really bad, nothing goes bad in that relationship. And it can be immensely rewarding and important on that account. That's fascinating. I guess I've never really thought about it in that way, the idea that it's somehow safer to have a relationship with animals in that way. I think it is. And, and I think that that's not, you know, that I, I mean, obviously, we're tantalized by things that aren't safe. Um, and I think that some of our relationships, I mean, certainly some of the relationships that I cultured earlier in my life with humans um, were deliberately unsafe uh, because it seemed to be an exciting thing to do. Uh, but with the benefit of hindsight, they mostly backfired and caused myself and other people, you know, an enormous amount of grief. Um, that's never happened with any of the relationships that I've had with my dogs. They've been absolute rocks. And, and I think that with the benefit of hindsight, although I wouldn't have acknowledged this until relatively recently for, for obvious reasons, they've always been my sort of autism assistance animals. They're, they're something that have given me the opportunity to get out, um, to talk to people. Um, because if, if you're out and about with two black poodles, I can tell you that... Everyone wants to talk to you. Okay. <laughs> they do. I don't know what it is about poodles. I think they're instantly recognisable and they have a charm and, and, and they're almost like cartoon dogs, aren't they? They're, they're a breed that everyone knows and they will stop and say, oh, how beautiful. How old are your dogs? And and, and without that sort of um, icebreaker, then I would probably just be looking down and walking by quietly. What are your dogs called? I have Sid and Nancy at the moment, after Sid Vicious and Nancy Spungen. And are they standard poodles or miniature poodles? They're the middle size, the miniatures. Um, I like standards very much. I've met quite a few over the years, but um, for practical reasons, that the middle ones uh, have been more suitable. Um, they're very 
characterful. They have strong personalities. They're constantly testing. They have irrepressible energy. And at heart, they are outright anarchists. Um, so although they're very trainable and easy to train on account of their relatively uh, high intelligence, um, they will constantly test you even when you've trained them. So on that, I, I like to be challenged <laughs> by my friendships. And so I'm constantly challenged by the poodles. That brings me to a question I was going to ask. You've been on television for 35 years and you've worked for most of the time with both animals and also with children, both of which are notoriously unpredictable. Has it always gone smoothly? Well, when I first started, I, you know, I started The Really Wild Show way back in 1986, and I was given no training as to how to be a television presenter. I, I had an enthusiastic uh, desire to communicate my passion to other people. I'd done that at our dinner tables, uh, you know, every single dinner for years, as my parents and my sister would often recount. Um, my sister, in fact, encouraged me to, to take that step onto the really wild show. She said, you've been boring us for years. I'll go and <laughs> bore the rest of the world with what you know about tawny owls was her exact phrase. Um, but of what the only, the only sort of trepidation that I felt was working with those young people. I, I just treated them like I treated everyone else. I didn't know what else to do, actually. And, and people often remarked upon the fact that I spoke to them rather as if they were adults and, and they seemed to like that and respond to it. it. It wasn't something that I calculated. I just simply didn't know how else to behave. But I slipped into it. And subsequent to that, I've obviously done a lot of work with young people. I still continue to do everything I can to provide them with a platform to um, exercise their voice and their skills and their energy and ambition. And I'm one of those people that allows them to take risks and and sometimes make mistakes because I did and um, I'm sure you did too, and we all do. Um, and I think that at this point in time, um, the urgency that young people require to to instigate change is is something that we should be harnessing and not holding at arm's length. So I, I still like to work with young people and give them as much time. And I had mentors, and I've always felt a, a real responsibility to, to put something back in that context. I wouldn't be having this conversation if it weren't for a handful of people that really helped me through some difficult periods. So I, I hope to be able to do the same with some young people. It's very important, isn't it? I feel that I also feel the same that I wouldn't have, well, I wouldn't be where I am today without mentors. And I almost feel like it's something that I always say to people, you know, you really need to kind of, it, I don't know, we're, I don't know how you found yours, but I mine just kind of stumbled into my life and then a few old colleagues. And uh, yeah, it's nice now actually to be in a position, which I'm sure you are now, to be able to help other people level up in that way. Yeah, it is. It's really important, particularly, you know, younger people who might be suffering from, um, you know, some of the the side effects, let's call them that in inverted commas, the side effects of autism, which can be mental health difficulties and other things. Um, I still fear that there are young people out there who, perhaps suffered in the same way that I did in the in the 1970s and, and 80s. Um, I would have hoped, and we all would have hoped, that the world had moved on and, and that degree of suffering might have disappeared by now. But unfortunately, I, I don't think it has. And therefore, they need as much support as possible. So I do what I can in my own small way on, on, on that account. But going back to the mentors, I... They were principally my educators. I was I was very fortunate that I had a very uh, brilliant uh, biology teacher at the comprehensive that I went to, and he nurtured me through, you know, a, a transition of only ever showing any aptitude for things that I was interested in and totally disregarding anything else. Um, so he kind of got me on the academic ladder. Um, I then went on to sixth form college, where as a punk rocker in 1970. 
seven. Uh, uh, I wasn't most welcomed as a pupil in that particular school. So my biology teacher there, um, again, kept me in education. He managed to stop them from throwing me out simply because of the way that I looked. I then went to university and had another, uh, my, my, tutor there was uh, instrumental. Is it the whole idea of giving back and mentoring another generation? Is that the reason why you wrote in your books and did the television programme about your experiences of living with autism? Um, I've been very fortunate to have been given uh, a small voice because of my appearances on TV and, and other things that I do. And I'd up until relatively recently, I'd exercised that voice to try and improve the natural world and the environment where I have perhaps, I mean, I'm not going to self-claim it, but I might have a small degree of knowledge and even authority. When I finally got my diagnosis after a period of psychotherapy through some really, really difficult and dark times, um, I, I decided to write the book, which I, in Fingers in the Sparkle Jar, which I wrote for myself. I didn't have a publisher. I just wrote a book. And then when I finished it, I'd, it was an exercise to see if I could do it. And, and I effectively stuck it under the bed um, or put the hard drive in my drawer. And, and a little while later, I gave it to someone to read. And, and they said, oh, you've got to publish it. So I went through the process of publishing, which was an absolute joy, I have to say. And But even more joyous was the response that it elicited um, from people who were either autistic or lived with or worked with or taught autistic people. Um, and they seemed to be profoundly pleased that I'd been able to articulate a bit more what it was like, because sometimes autistic people, particularly young people, um, can't really explain, put it into words, um, what it's like or what the needs are, what the difficulties are, what the pleasures are. Um, and so having done that, and then we made a television program after a little bit of a hiatus because I was you know, concerned that I wanted to any representation of autism to show the positive rather than just the negative, which we sometimes tend to dwell on. I just sort of thought, well, now people are are listening to me on, on and you know and, and if I can do some good and people were writing and saying you've done some good and then I just sort of thought well I was brought out to be a kind person by my parents and I think that kindness is about giving something of yourself to people uh, sometimes and so giving a little bit of myself I never claim to be an expert I'm not a healthcare professional I'm just someone with autism I can only ever talk about my own experience but if that helps then that's great. I mean, I think it was a really important contribution. I, I mean, I found it extraordinary that you, you just wrote this book for yourself um, and it touched many people. And I think it has such a lyrical quality to it, Chris, in terms of your, your writing. I think that's I think pro- what, what blew me away, actually, with, with the story. Um, what is it that you would love people to know about what it's like living with, with autism? I would like them to think, how can we change what we do to make these people's lives better? And when I say better, I don't necessarily mean to make them you know, permanently happy. I mean to offer them an opportunity to fulfill their lives, to play a valuable role in society, um, to integrate into that society far more comfortably, um, and to be able to access parts of their life which should be accessible to them, but are otherwise excluded because of what are very often very, very simple things. Now, you'll know that in the last few years, um, retailers, shops, have changed some of their practices, and certainly before COVID, they were they were having early opening hours in some branches so that 
autistic people could go in when it was quieter, less crowded, and so on and so forth. And they would adjust, they'd turn the music off, and they would make, they would change that environment in, in actually fundamentally pretty subtle ways. But it made an enormous difference to a lot of people. Then there were cinemas that jumped on board and thought, okay, we'll 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 we'll, we'll play the same films, but we'll play them with the sound uh, modified, so it's not so loud and jarring, which because acoustic. Um, Issues are, are quite frequent in, in with autistic people, and so we saw across society very simple changes being offered and implemented, which made enormous differences to lots of people. And very often, particularly within the education system, um, you know, there were, there, if the educators and those who or- organise that system understand, you know, what autistic people require in order to excel. And we want everyone to excel. And very often, autistic people have the capability of excelling um, to, to a very high degree. Then making those changes seems an obvious thing to do. What food do you eat when you're filming? What are your go-to snacks? I try to eat as healthily as possible. When, when we're you know, pre-COVID, flat out working and traveling, it's obviously difficult sometimes to source the, the precise things that you want if you uh, don't have the time or the access to sources of those and or if you're traveling overseas and they're simply not on anyone's menu in any, any shop or restaurant or cafe or whatever. I have to entertain a degree of flexibility, but I'm vegan now. So, and, and I'm pretty, I mean, well, I say pretty strict with it. I am strict with it and, and that's it. So I go without if there isn't an alternative. One of the things, um, um, this is will shock and horrify you, but um, so over the last three nights, I, my partner and I live separately. She lives on the island, and we, I say we live separately. We spend a lot of time living together. But we've got two houses basically, so, and sometimes we're in at mine, and sometimes we're in hers. She's on the Isle of Wight, isn't yeah, she? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Anyway, very yeah, sensible yeah. way to do it, Chris. <laughs> to be honest, <laughs> it's a bit like Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera, but less tumultuous, hopefully. <laughs> yes, yes, hopefully a lot less tumultuous. Um, <laughs> <laughs> not knowing of their relationship, yeah, and I'm I'm better behaved than he was as well. I want to strike out and say that. <laughs> yeah, sorry for bringing up that comparison. Uh, anyway, look, she's been at home for the last three nights. She has become a very, very good cook. So this leaves me and the poodles in my house, and I've eaten exactly the same food three nights in a row. Um, and I've sent her a photograph of it every night. Uh, she's horrified, of course. And um, and that is, a, again, it goes back to that autism thing. We like, I wear the same clothes when I'm indoors. So I have a, a uniform. So when I come in and I've finished work, I put my uniform on. The uniform lasts for about I don't know, until someone destroys it because they think it's unhygienic. Oh, so it literally would be the same T-shirt. It wouldn't yeah. be like, the, it's not like the same style of T-shirt. No. It's a, at the moment, it's a, a T-shirt which is a facsimile of Neil Armstrong's spacesuit and, okay. and, a, and a, a pair of what we, we call, what would you might call jogging bottoms, I suppose. They're running trousers. They're, they're comfortable. They're comfy. Uh, yeah. Um, but it's not the comfort. It doesn't have to be that it has just to be the regularity the, the regularity and so given the choice when i'm on my own i will eat the same thing and the same thing and the same thing and the same thing and the same thing 
and I, I will there stock therefore stock up the cupboard with the whatever they uh, you know the components or the ingredients mm. are, and, and I would do the same thing. Now, fortunately, I don't spend that much time on my own <laughs> anymore, <laughs> and so Charlotte comes in and and does remarkable cooking, which diversifies my diet. The food is invariably much healthier because I'm you know I'm, I'm preparing it last minute, uh, late at night, and. Um, and, and, and that's a, a real benefit. But there have been times when I've been on my own that I, I mean, I would just eat pizza every night for weeks. I know it sounds bizarre, but... thats I was going to ask you, what was that dish you ate three nights in a row? Was that pizza the same pizza or was it... No, it wasn't. Well, Charlotte eats very he- healthily. So my craving is to yeah. eat dirty food. Oh, yeah. So I had... Vegan burger, fries, and then because I like them and I've liked them ever since I was a child, um, baked beans. Nice. Chris, honestly, I don't think that's that shocking at all. No. You've been vegetarian for three decades and then you did Veganuary in 2019 and decided to stick with it. Yeah. Tell me about that. Why did you feel that was important to you? Well, I'd, I'd been yeah veggie since my early 20s and um, and then I had an epiphany and, and it came in the way that many people have them, I think. And uh, I went to an all indoor dairy unit um, and I spent a day working there. Now, I've got to stress that um, there were no direct welfare issues. The animals were well cared for. It was immaculately clean and very well run. But it was, for me, a vision of a hideous dystopian future. Uh, These animals go through three lactation cycles before they're slaughtered. Um, Most organic outdoor cattle I mean, they would do 10 or 11. I, I, I know a farmer who allows his to do, well, depending on the fitness of the animal and the welfare of the animal, it could do 12 or 13. And then it's, it's literally put out to grass. He considers that that animal is given and he will then nurture it for the rest of its life. So uh, there was a, a stark contrast at that point between, you know, my friend's farm where I saw these animals out in these lovely lush meadows. And then I was in this illuminated shed. And when I drove out of there that night, I just thought, no. I can't guarantee to source dairy products from the likes of my friend's farm. And and if I can't do that with any certainty, I don't want to support that type of industrial farming. I, there are better ways for us to produce food and live more harmoniously alongside those animals and our environment. So it, it just turned on that sixpence. I drove out of there and that was it. And could you do you not feel like you could sort, I mean, it sounds like you do have a friend that does have an organic farm. Like, could you not source from there? Well, yeah, I could when I was at home um, and, and we can walk down the aisles of Waitrose and we can get food, but I don't do that. I, I travel all around the country, all around the world. And I, the food labelling is not what it should be. Even here in the UK, overseas, it can be non-existent. So given my lifestyle, I didn't have that opportunity. I, I watched a, a documentary that my friend Henry Edmonds, his name is at Chalderton, as a farm in, in Hampshire. It's one of the most beautiful places in, in the UK as a piece of our landscape. It's enormously biodiverse. Um, it's dairy and it's a mixed farm. Uh, he's an extremely intelligent uh, farmer, I'm sure he doesn't really appreciate my veganism. We've never fallen out, and, um, and we 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 have different ideas about things. And I intend to promote his film and his regenerative farming as as much as I possibly can. I think it's a way that we we must move forward. But um, and he's no fan of of you know drenching the land in chemicals and you know thrashing the soil with crop after crop and filling it full of per- fertilizers. He, like many other farmers, are beginning to realise that we have to nurture nature in order to continue to 
prosper. I have to admit, when I've done some trips around our Waitrose dairy farms, I've been amazed about how much of their land is just dedicated to wildlife and there's kind of unusual butterflies flying around. Yeah, that's right. There are opportunities to change to do that. There are two two key words. One is tolerance and the other is transition. We're all on a journey, but we're not all going to travel at the same speed. We're not all going to switch our mind, you know, change our minds and practices at the same time. So if people take a longer time to move Complete. Say we wanted them all. I say. I say our wish was that if eventually at some point we wanted everyone to be vegan. Well, that isn't going to happen overnight. We've got to show people why it's a good idea. That they've got to come to that rec- you know realization themselves, and they've got to be in a position where they can afford to or want to do that. Now, that that's going to take some time. Now, the transition word is is really important because if everyone went vegan overnight, it would trash the farming economy and all of those farmers' lives and their children's lives and much of the landscape too. You know, my point of view is that if we are moving in the right direction at whatever pace we are comfortable with, then that's great. My duty is to offer people alternatives, offer people choices, and to explain to them why I think that that choice is a better choice to make. It's a a more contemporary choice. It's something that we, you know, if we're thinking about the environment, we know we've got to eat less meat. As a consequence of that, we should be having more plant-based foods. That's one one thing. So I provide that information. What I don't do, because I'm not what I call an ultra-vegan, is is stand there didactically saying, you're either a good person or you're a bad person. You know, we're all bad in some ways. We're all on that journey, whether it's food, energy, all of the things that we consume in our lives. We, we just have to be tolerant of one another and kind to, to one another. And, and, and that includes extending an enormous amount of tolerance um, and kindness to farmers as they move through that transition. We are facing a climate and environment emergency. And as much as I've already said that you know, we should be tolerant, kind, and, and we should transition, that's carrot. I do feel that we also need a little bit of stick and, and, and to encourage people to move more rapidly to a much more healthy and sustainable future. Absolutely. So much of this stuff is systemic, you know, and obviously as individuals, of course, we can make a difference. Of course, all individuals can, but it is a, a, a global and national food system that needs to evolve really to meet the needs of the climate emergency, as you, as you pointed yeah, out. Yeah, but I mean, it, it, it is down to us as individuals as well. I mean, you know, we all have a choice. A lot of the time in the UK, we're focused upon the value in, of food in terms of pounds and pence. But what we also have to ask people to do is stand in the aisles and think about what the value of that food is or what the cost has been to the environment. Because very often there's a discrepancy between the two. And when I say the environment, that includes animal welfare, so on and so forth. Um, so food labeling is something I think we need to improve. I, I think that Waitrose recently, I've been leading a campaign called the calling for the better chicken commitment. So this is chicken welfare standards, basically, in the UK. Um, I won't get into the gruesome details now. I don't need to. But Waitrose have signed up to it. So this is great because, you know, myself and those leading that campaign have gone to the, the, the supermarkets and we've said, look, this is what concerns us. This is what we'd like to do in terms of improving welfare for these animals. And Waitrose agreed instantaneously and they've taken a lead. And that's all Waitrose chicken that's higher welfare, including our essential range, not just the organic or free range chicken. That's right, because uh, one of the arguments against instigating that change is the price point in the price the price point in pounds and pence but 
what my argument always is that if you put the price on the chicken and you also put a photograph of where it had been living, um, then there will be a secondary price point on that on that item, and that would be the price of suffering, and people will be able to see it, and they would might make a different choice. Um, I'm not saying they could all afford to, but I think many would. The passion uh, is is quite infectious, Chris, when you when you speak about these subjects. And I know that you've campaigned on so many issues over the course of your lifetime, really, from you know badger calls to kind of what we're talking about now to the climate emergency. Given the struggles that we face as as a species in light of all of these these challenges, where do you find hope? Well. I think there's been some hope in the conversation that we've had because we have touched on, albeit tangentially, um, the solutions to our problems. We've mentioned that we need to eat less meat um, and that we need to transition to more plant-based. We've talked about reducing the amount of damaging chemicals which are ravaging our biodiversity by killing all of the insects so that there's not enough for the birds and bats and everything else to eat. Um, we have a portfolio um if you forgive the military analogy, an arsenal of abilities and technologies which we could implement to make enormous changes. Uh, our problem is that we've not been implementing that rapidly or broadly enough. And, and that's been down to our complacency. I think that we've been all too comfort, comfortable thinking that th- these, this you know, enormous issue, climate uh, uh, and environment emergency is not our problem. It's going to happen somewhere else. And also, I think that this is an exceptional time for humanity. But unfortunately, we have an unexceptional set of global leaders. And it, and it's not down to people in the UK, and it's not down to individuals. I'm talking about collectively. So look, the key point is, we can moan about that, and that won't get us anywhere at all. Or we can do something about it. And we're very fortunate to live in ostensibly a, a democratic country where we have the right to raise our voice and ask for our elected representatives to better represent us. And that's what we do. And that's why we campaign. We're constantly just trying to remind them that they've got to raise their game, and they've got to listen to expertise and act upon it and, and make best informed decisions on the science we've got at this point in time. And and people like myself are really just a conduit between, if you like, the scientists and the decision makers. And, and, and I'm just trying to join those two people together and say, look, the situation's critical. Stop dillying and dallying and get on with it because we've got a solution. And that's where the optimism is. If there were no solutions, well, we'd be going to hell in a handcart. Absolutely. And I think it's really important to remember that, actually, exactly what we spelt out, that the solutions are within our reach and we know what they are. It's just a case of political will. What has a lifetime immersed in the natural world taught you? It's taught me a lot about truth and beauty. I like to think of science as being the art of understanding truth and beauty. And I, I like the I like integrating the word art into my description because I'm very keen on art and I'm very keen in, a, in, in an interface between science and art. I think this can be very beautiful science. And sometimes we're taught, if you like, we're brought up to admire artistic things, whether it's music or dance or, you know, painting or whatever, all, all those things that we've that we express how we express ourselves in enormously imaginatively and, and creatively. Um, and they are beautiful. There's no doubt. I'm a great fan of, of, of all of that, but science isn't just about getting answers. Sometimes the, the, the method of getting the answers, sometimes the answers themselves are, 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 are breathtakingly beautiful. And, and I think that when I go out and I look at the natural world, the way that it functions at the, an individual species level all the way through to the, the whole ecology of, of that given area 
um, is truthful. It's honest. It works. It, it's not all. It's not all kind. I mean, you know, things get killed and eaten. Other things just die and and decay. But at the same time, its functionality is wholly truthful. There's nothing corrupt going on. And when you draw all of that together, it's not about putting individual species, you know, on a pedestal and, and worshipping them because they're out of context. When I was a child, I just, I did that. I used to put a ladybird in a jam jar and I think that's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And then I'd put a lizard in a jam jar. Oh, that's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And this carried on until I was, you know, well, I worshipped my kestrel as a teenager in, entirely independently from everything else. So it wasn't until I got to my mid-twenties when I begun to understand all of the connectivity, the, the complex connectivity of the natural world, that I realized that there was a greater beauty. And now that I'm aware of that, when I go to, albeit semi-functional ecosystems, because there are very few that we haven't had some uh, negative effect on, I can stand there and I don't need anything else. You know, I'm, I'm in nature's art gallery. I'm in, I'm not, I'm in, in uh, nature's art gallery. I'm in the best one. I'm standing there, you know, with the Rothkos and the Pollocks and, and all of the other art that excites me around me in, in natural form. And it is faultless and inspirational and, and it, and it engenders almost instantaneous euphoria. You know, I can just feel so good knowing that it's working and it's beautiful. Well, that's the most extraordinary description. Thank you, Chris. You've inspired me to go for a walk as soon as we get off this call, um, which is also quite timely because I know that you're presenting Autumn Watch. We, we look forward to Autumn Watch. Autumn is one of the most exciting times of the year because it's largely unpredictable. You never know when it's going to start, if it starts at all, and when it might finish. Um, spring has to happen in springtime. Winter in, invariably follows autumn, so it's going to happen at some point. Autumn is the one that, that chops, chops and changes because it's in influenced by obviously the spring and summer seasons every year. So end of October, I'm going back to Norfolk. Uh, Megan, my stepdaughter, is going to Mull. Uh, I'll be there with Michaela and it will be our usual box of treats. Um, best of British wildlife, we hope. Uh, we'll be in the dark, of course, so we're focusing more on nocturnal species than we would have done in, in Spring Watch. And I can tell you, we've already got some treats in store. We've been out uh, re recording things. And we're giving also a platform to young people, which I mentioned earlier is, is really important. And we've got some films from young filmmakers and I, I love, you know, putting those out it's just great well i can't wait to watch it and autumn is also from a food perspective of course a very abundant time of year but before we go i am very curious because this is life on a plate i would love to know what is chris packham's store cupboard staples what have you got in there chris what are the like three ingredients that you always have okay uh i would have bran flakes um, very healthy, excellent. Very healthy because is that that's what you'd have for breakfast? Yeah, although sometimes if I don't get time for breakfast, they turn into a sort of a mid-afternoon snack. I've got to say that I've got a current food obsession, uh, which is eat real lentil chips. Um, I'm not being paid by eat real in I any way, shape, or form, or supported ones. by. Oh, I've not had them. Are they good? Just you know, there are other brands of like chip that you once you start, you can't stop. 
well, that might be an exaggeration, but not with uh, the lentil chips. <laughs> so every, okay. every night, every night I open a packet and uh, I put them in a bowl and I'm, Sid and Nancy like them too. Oh. And although I'm, I'm sure they sh- didn't ought to be eating lentil chips, but they. You reward them with. Uh, yeah. The so we share, we share lent- lentil chips at about six oh. o'clock every night. So that's become another ha- a food habit. Uh, there's no question of that. And the third one? Right. Well, the, the third one is another bad one. Um, but, and it's bad because it's got palm oil in it. And I've tried to do what I can to reduce my intake of palm oil. It's very, very difficult, as you'll know. Um, so I'm chastised by Megan and Charlotte for, for having this one. But every night before they go to bed, um, the poodles are treated with half a digestive biscuit. <laughs> oh, how austere, just oh. half a digestive biscuit. Well, <laughs> look, they're quite sugary and salty. and But the thing is, it makes them so happy every night, you know. Um, it, I, it's just one of those things. I don't eat them myself, but um, I've always given them to my poodles at bedtime. And, and, and I just love making them happy, you know. It's just one of the best things in my life so when I go to the biscuit tin at the close of prey and I take out the digestive biscuits and their little chestnut eyes sparkle and then they bound up the stairs oh. and onto the bed and I give them the last piece as I always announce um I, I, I've, they're always in the cupboard. What I'm, what I'm saying to you is that I couldn't not be without one yeah. of those. You know, otherwise, can you imagine the consequences? It would be unthinkable. I was going to say, you know, the best thing about dogs and poodles is it's the un- unconditional love, but clearly it's actually their love for you, the digestive <laughs> at the end of the day. <laughs> um, it's kitchen grill time. Kitchen grill is just 10 quick questions. You know, it's no right or wrong answer. Tea or coffee? Neither. I, I I gave. I never had drunk coffee, and I gave up drinking mm. tea about ten or fifteen years ago. So my my hot beverage of choice, uh, and and it's a treat, is hot chocolate, vegan hot chocolate. But obviously, um, I can't have it all the time. Uh, mash or chips? Oh, do you know what? Mash with lots of mustard in it, and 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 Ooh. pepper on top. Um, vegan butter these days of course do you know i'm going mash over chips but that's a very very tight contest <laughs> a baguette or sourdough oh sourdough no no question at all yeah baguettes it, but what i don't like you see is all the mess if you pick up a baguette and it's one of those ones with the crusty crust, oh, crusty crust, crumbs everywhere crumbs. who's gonna clean that up if you haven't got the poodles <laughs> you know so so no i don't like fo- i don't like messy food uh crisps or chocolate chocolate Every night is one of my, I have vices. I'll I'll reveal one of them. Um, So I go to bed and and I have dark vegan chocolate and um, I invariably go to bed very late, uh, about sort of one-ish or maybe even half one sometimes. Um, And I'm I'm told it's not the thing to do is to have sugar at that point when you should be trying to go to sleep. But I I have, um, well, I try to keep it to sort of two squares, um, probably about, 10 centimetres by two centimetres, but sometimes yeah. I maybe nibble a little bit more. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with a bit of dark vegan chocolate. Uh, fruit or vegetables? Vegetables, no doubt. Um, I don't eat fruit at all, actually. A bit bizarre, but um, I don't like the texture of it and the feel of it. And um, It's a childhood thing. My mum used to make me eat like nectarines and peaches and things and the juice juice would run all over me and they got that soft squidgy feel to them and even now it's making me like grind mm. my teeth. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, spicy or mild? Spicy. I like I like hot food. Yeah, not not seriously. I'm not one of those people that would go to an Indian restaurant and and, and tackle the menu head on. Uh, but I do like sort of I, not so much hot food, but spicy food. Spicy. It's the flavors. Yeah. Starter or pudding. 
Uh, starter, without a doubt. But again, that's down to you know dietary reasons. I can't, just can't eat that much sugar anymore, I'm afraid. So I, I go for the starter. Are you a grazer or a feaster? Feaster. So I, 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 I'm not a nibbler. So mm-hmm. I, I, it's not unusual for me to not have breakfast, not have lunch, and only eat once a day in the evening. That that would be relatively common. Restaurant food or sofa supper? Well, given that Charlotte has turned into one of the finest cooks that I've encountered. Um, I'm going for sofa supper without a shred of a doubt. I mean, the, it's, her mother was always a great cook, and and yeah. I and she and I weren't. But lockdown, it's become her hobby, and and seriously, I mean, maybe I could do it. I don't know. It's given me hope that one day I could pick up those books. And of I mean, you it's could. now she's intuitive, so she's not just following the recipes. She's actually, you know, she's acting more artistically and intuitively. And I just, I never imagined that I'd have the skill to do that. So I, that's why I didn't invest in it. Sight or smell when it comes to food? Smell, definitely. Um, I, I, I've obviously done everything I can to enhance my sense of smell. Our, our sense of smell is, uh, we always ridicule it and compare it to other animals like dogs, who we know have significantly better senses uh, of smell. But we do underestimate our sense of smell. And subconsciously, it's really important to us. We choose our partners on, you know, in, and part of that is, is how they smell. And we know mm. them, how they smell. And yet, if I were to ask you, what does your partner smell like? You might find it quite difficult to describe it, but you, you, but you know it, your brain yeah. knows it. So I've done everything I can to excite my olfactory senses. So yeah, the smell is smell is really important to me. It's interesting you say that actually because I feel that I have I'm not I'm not like bragging about my sense of smell, but I feel like I have like an extraordinary sense of smell. But it, I almost find like sometimes it's a curse because I can get really overwhelmed with smells when I walk into a room or a place or traveling can be really difficult. And I can smell things that no one else in the room will find difficult. And I'll be like, oh, what's that scent? And then my my friends and family don't like it because I can walk into the kitchen and nine times out of 10, even though the kitchen has been cleaned down, tell them what's been cooked in the kitchen hours yeah. earlier from just what <laughs> it's interesting isn't it and I sometimes wonder if people who are really good at cooking we just have like did, which, what what came first the fact that our senses were were, were stronger on that level yeah. so it relates to us more or it's something that we developed I, th- I think you I think you can tra- train yourself I don't think there's any doubt I think you can train yourself also in, when you look at our neurophysiology there's a lot more plasticity in our brains because it's not about noses it's about internal interpreting you know the smell and there's a lot more plasticity there than we give ourselves credit for and I think therefore you can expand your capacity to use your senses when people lose their sight their hearing massively improves and and they actually use that part of the brain which was formerly used for sight for hearing which is pretty remarkable thanks Chris that was the kitchen grill so um thank you Okay, I don't think I was probably going to score 10 out of 10 on your kitchen No, 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 there was, no, there was no right and wrong answer. <laughs> oh, okay. It's just a little way for me to be a bit more nosy and find out a little bit more about you. So thanks so much for joining us, Chris. This has been a really inspiring and fascinating conversation. I'm really looking forward to watching Autumn Watch. And I yeah, want to thank you on behalf of me and Alison and everyone on Life on a Plate for joining us. That's a pleasure. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Life on a Plate from Waitrose with me, Yasmin Khan. Thank you to my co-host, Alison Okavy, and our guest, Chris Packham. If you've enjoyed this conversation, you can find more like it by subscribing to Life on a Plate wherever you get your podcasts. And to learn more about the series, go visit waitrose.com forward slash podcast. Podcast.